Chapter Twenty Two of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Curran. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter Twenty Two. Lest We Forget. Part B. Gordon Brown. There are many young men who lost a true friend when Gordon Brown died. He was their ideal. After his college days were over, he became very much interested in settlement work on the east side in New York. He devoted much of his time after business to this great work, which still stands as a monument to him. He was as loyal to it as he was to football when he played at Yale. Gordon Brown's career at Yale was a remarkable one. He was captain of the greatest football team Yale ever had. Whenever the 1900 team is mentioned, it is spoken of as Gordon Brown's team. The spirit of this great thoroughbred still lives at Yale, still lives at Groton School, where he spent six years. He was captain there and leader in all the activities in the school. He was one of the highest type college men I have ever known. He typified all the best there was in Yale. He was strong mentally as well as physically. It was my pleasure to have played against him in two Yale-Princeton games, 98 and 99, I have never known a finer sportsman than he. He played the game hard, and he played it fair. He had nothing to say to his opponents in the game. He was there for business, always urging his fellow players on to better work. Everyone who knew this gallant leader had absolute confidence in him. All admired and loved him. There was no one at Yale who was more universally liked and acknowledged as a leader in all the relations of the university than was Gordon Brown. The influence of such a man cannot but live as a guide and inspiration for all that is best at Yale University. Gordon Brown's name will live in song and story. There were with him Yale men not less efficient in the football sense, as witness the following. A Yale song verse from the Yale Daily News, November 16, 1900. Jimmy Ware and Gordon Brown, Finke and Stillman gaining round. Olcott in the center stands, with Perry Hale as a battering ram. No hope for Princeton. James J. Hogan. The boys who were at Exeter, when that big, raw-boned fellow, Jim Hogan, entered there, will tell of the noble fight he made to get an education. He worked with his hands early and late to make enough money to pay his way. His effort was a splendid one. He was never idle and was an honor man for the greater part of his stay at school. He found time to go out for football, however, and turned out to be one of the greatest players for that ever went to Exeter. Jim Hogan was one of the highest type of Exeter men, held up as an example of what an Exeter boy should be. His spirit still lives in the school. In speaking of Hogan recently, Professor Ford of Exeter said, Whenever Hogan played football, his hands were always moving in the football line. It was almost like that in the classroom, always on the edge of his seat, fighting for every bit of information that he could get, and determined to master any particularly difficult subject. It was interesting and almost amusing at times to watch him. One could not help respecting such earnestness. He possessed great powers of leadership, and there was never any question as to his sincerity and perfect earnestness. He was not selfish, but always trying to help his fellow students accomplish something. His influence among the boys was thoroughly good, and he held positions of honor and trust from the time of his admission. Jim was hungry for an education. 
eager to forge ahead. His whole college career was an earnest endeavor. He never knew what it was to lose heart. Letting go had no part with his life. Jim was a physical marvel. His 206 pounds of bone and muscle counted for much in the Yale rush line. Members of the faculty considered him the highest type of Yale man, and it is said that President Hadley of Yale once referred to 1905 as Hogan's class. As a football player, Jim had few equals. He was captain of the Yale team in his senior year and was picked by the expert as an all-American tackle. Jim Hogan, at his place on the Yale rush line, was a sight worth seeing, with his jersey sleeves rolled up above his elbows and a smile on his face. He would break into the opposing line, smash up the interference, and throw the backs for a loss. I can see him rushing the ball, scoring touchdowns, making holes in the line, doing everything that a great player could do, and urging on his teammates, Harder, Yale, hard, harder, Yale. He was a hard, strong, cheerful player. That is, he was cheerful as long as the other men fought fair. Great was Jim Hogan. To work with him, shoulder to shoulder, was my privilege. To know him was to love, honor, and respect him. Jim spent his last hours in New Haven, and later in a humble home on the hillside in Torrington, Connecticut, surrounded by loving friends, and the individual pictures of that strong Gordon Brown team hanging on the wall above him, a loving coterie of friends, said goodbye. Many a boy out of college realizes that he owes a great deal to the brotherly spirit of Jim Hogan. Thomas J. Shevlin There is a college tradition which embodies the thought that a man can never do as much for the university as the university has done for him. But in that great athletic victory of 1915, when Yale defeated Princeton at New Haven, I believe Tom Shevlin came nearer upsetting that tradition than anyone I know of. He contributed as much as, as any human being possibly could to the university that brought him forth. Tom Shevlin's undergraduate life at New Haven was not all strewn with roses, but he was glad always to go back when requested and put his shoulder to the wheel. The request came usually at a time when Yale's football was in the slough of despond. He was known as Yale's emergency coach. Tom Shevlin had nerve. He must have been full of it to tackle the great job which was put before him in the fall of 1915. Willingly did he respond, and great was the reward. When I saw him in New York, on his way to New Haven, I told him what a great honor I thought it was for Yale to single him out from all her coaches at this critical time to come back and try to put the Yale team in shape. It did not seem either to enthuse or worry him very much. He said, I just got a telegram from Mike Sweeney to wait and see him in New York before going to New Haven. I suppose he wants to advise me not to go and tackle the job, but I'm going just the same. Yale can't be much worse off for my going than she is today. The result of Shevlin's coaching is well known to all, and I shall always remember him after the game, when that contented, happy look upon his face as I congratulated him, while he stood on a bench in front of the Yale stand, watching the Yale undergraduates carry their victorious team off the field. Walter Camp stood in the distance, and Shevlin yelled to him, Well, how about it, Walter? This victory will go down in Yale's football history as an almost miraculous event. Here was a team beaten in many times by small colleges, humiliated and frowned upon, not only by Yale, but by the entire college world. They presented themselves in the Yale Bowl, ready to make their last stand. 
As for Princeton, it seemed only a question as to how large her score would be. Men had gone to cheer for Princeton, who for many years had looked forward to a decisive victory over Yale. The game was already bottled up before it started, but when Yale's future football history is written, when captain and coaches talk to the team before the game next year, when mass meetings are called to arouse college spirit, at banquets where victorious teams are the heroes of the occasion, someone will stand forth and tell the story of the great fighting spirit that Captain Wilson and his gallant team exhibited in the Yale Bowl that November day. Although Tom Shevlin, the man that made it possible, is now dead, his memory at Yale is sacred and will live long. Many will recall his wonderful playing, his power of leadership, his Yale captaincy, his devotion to Yale at a time when he was most needed. If in the last game against Harvard, the team that fought so wonderfully well against Princeton could not do the impossible and defeat the great Houghton machine, it was not Shevlin's fault. It simply could not be done. It lessens in, not the slightest degree, the tribute that we pay to Tom Shevlin. Francis H. Buer Hamfish was a great Harvard player in his day. When his playing days were over, Walter Camp paid him the high tribute of placing him on the all-time All-American team at tackle. Fish played at Harvard in 1907 and 1908, and was captain of the team in 1909. I know of no Harvard man who is in a better position to pay a tribute to Francis Beer, whose spirit still lives at Cambridge, than Ham Fish. They were teammates, and when in 1908 Beer remained on the sidelines on account of injuries, Hamfish was the acting Harvard captain. Fish tells us the frowning regarding Bure. Francis Bure was of gigantic frame, standing six feet three and agile as a young mountain lion. He weighed two hundred pounds. The incoming class of 1905 was signalized by having this man who came from Andover. He stood out above his fellows, not only in athletic prowess but in all-around manly qualities, both mental and moral. Bure had no trouble in making a place on the varsity team at guard. He was a punter of exceeding worth in the year of 1908. He was captain of the Harvard team and wrought the most inestimable service to Harvard athletics by securing Percy Houghton as head coach. Hook Bure was primarily responsible for Houghton and the abundance of subsequent victories. Just when Bure's abilities as player and captain were most needed, he dislocated his collarbone in practice. I shall never forget the night before the Yale game how Beer, who had partially recovered and was very anxious to play, reluctantly and unselfishly yielded to the coaches, who insisted that he should not incur the risk of a more serious break. Harvard won that day, the first time in seven years, and a large share of the credit should go to the injured leader. We were all happy over the result, but none of us were as happy as he. Stricken with pneumonia while attending the Harvard Law School in 1910, he died, leaving a legacy full of encouragement and inspiration to all Harvard men. He exemplified in his life the golden rule, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Of him can be truly said, his life was gentle as a whole, and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, He was a man. Neil Snow the University of Michigan never graduated a man who was more universally loved than Neil Snow. What he did, and the way he did it, has become a tradition at Michigan. He was idolized by everyone who knew him, 
as a player and captain he set a wonderful example for his men to pattern after he was a powerful player possessing such determination and fortitude that he would go through a stone wall if he had to he was their great all-around athlete good in football baseball and track he had the unique record of winning his michigan m twelve times during his college course at ann arbor he played his last game of football at pasadena california neil was very fond of exercise he believed in exercise and when a word was sent out that neil snow had gone it was found that he had just finished playing in a game of rackets in detroit and before the flush and zest were entirely gone the last struggle and participation in athletic contests for neil snow were over it was my experience to have been at ann arbor in nineteen hundred when biffy lee coached the michigan team it was at this time that i met neil snow who was captain of the team and when i grew to know him i soon realized how his great quiet modest though wonderful personality made everybody idolize him modesty was his most noticeable characteristic he was always the last to talk of his own athletic achievements he believed in action more than in words after his playing days were over he made a great name for himself as an official in the big games the larger colleges in the east had come to realize with what great efficiency neil snow acted as an official and his services were eagerly sought neil snow loved athletics he often referred to his college experiences his example was one held up as ideal among the men who knew him when billy banner died johnny poe wrote to mrs banner a letter a portion of which follows i greatly enjoy thinking of those glorious days in the fall of ninety five ninety six and ninety seven when i was coaching at princeton and saw so much of billy and if i live to ripe old age i do not think i shall forget how he and ed kelly came on in the yale game of ninety five and with a score of sixteen and all against us started in by steadily rushing the ball up to and over the yale goal and after the kickoff once more started on the march for another touchdown it was a superb exhibition of nerve in the face of almost certain defeat and showed a spirit that would not be downed and i have often thought of this game in different far-off parts of the world while yale finally won twenty to ten still billy showed the same spirit that farragut showed when told that the river was filled with torpedoes and that it would be suicidal to proceed he replied damn the torpedoes full steam ahead i love to think of billy's famous fifty-yard run for a touchdown through the harvard team in ninety six at cambridge when the score had been a tie and how he with ad kelly and johnny baird went through the yale team in that ninety six game and ran the score up to twenty four representing five touchdowns never before had a yale team been driven like chaff before the wind as that blue team was driven billy bannard and ad kelly's names were always coupled in their playing days at princeton these two halfbacks were great teammates when bill bannard died ad kelly lost one of his best friends in ad kelly's recollections we read whenever i think of my playing days i always recall the harvard princeton game of eighteen ninety six and with it comes a tribute to one of us who has passed to the great beyond one with whom i played side by side for three years 
Bill Bannard, I always thought that, in this particular game, he never received the credit due him. In my opinion, his run on that memorable day was the best I have ever seen. His running and dodging, and his excellent judgment, had no superior in the football annals of our day. In speaking of great individual plays that have won close games, his name should go down with Charlie Daly, Clint Wyclough, Arthur Poe, Snake Ames, and Dudley Dean, for with Ryder's splendid interference in putting out the Harvard left end, Billy Bannard's touchdown gave Princeton the confidence to carry her to victory that day, and to the ultimate championship two weeks later. Harry Hooper When Harry Hooper, one of Dartmouth's greatest players, was taken away, every man who knew Hooper felt it a great personal loss. Those who had seen him play at Exeter, and there formed his acquaintance, and later at Dartmouth, saw him develop into the mighty center rush of the 1903 Dartmouth team, idolized him. C. E. Bolster of Dartmouth, who knew him well, says, Harry Hooper was a great center on a great team. The success of his eleven was due to its good fellowship and teamwork. The central figure was the idol of his fellow players, such as Hooper, shortly after the football season that year. He was operated upon for appendicitis, and it soon became evident that he could not recover. He was told of his plight. He bravely faced the inevitable and expressed the wish that if he really had to go, he might have with him, at the last, his comrades of the football field. These teammates rallied at his request. They surrounded him. They talked the old days over, and supported by those with whom he had fought for the glory of his college. This real hero passed into the great beyond, and deep down in the traditions of Dartmouth and Exeter, the name of Harry Hooper is incredibly written. The game of football is growing old. The ranks of its heroes are being slowly but surely thinned. The players are retiring from the game of life. Some old and some young. The list might go on indefinitely. There are many names that deserve mention, but this cannot be. The list of thoroughbreds is a long one. Yours must be a silent tribute. Dr. Andrew J. McCosh, Ned Peace, Gud Hawley, Dudley Riggs, Harry Brown, Simus, Bill Black, Pringle Jones, Jerry McCauley, Jim Rhodes, Bill Schwartz, Frank Peters, George Stillman, H. Scholklopf, Wilson of the Navy and Byrne of the Army, Eddie Ward, Albert Rosengarden, McClung Dudley and Matthews, Richard Harding Davis and Matthew McClung were two Lehigh men whose position in the football world was most prominent. The esteem in which they are held by their alma mater is enduring. I had talked with Dick Davis when this book was in its infancy. He was very much interested, and asked that I write him a letter outlining what I would like to have him send me. Just before he died, I received this letter from him. I regret he did not live to tell the story he had in mind. Handwritten Letter Richard Harding Davis, Mount Kisco, New York, April 2nd my dear edwards yes indeed as soon as i finish something i am at work on i'll think back and write you some memoirs with all good wishes his interest in football had been a keen one he was one of the leaders at lehigh who first organized that university's football team he was a truly remarkable player what he did in football was well known to men of this day he loved the game he wrote about the game he did much to help the game 
End of chapter 22 Lest We Forget Part B Recording by Chris Caron